Okay. So this area is the place where the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, was born. I was trying to figure out if you could say that the Buddha was born here, and I, of course it's all semantics, but it is a point of technicality that he wasn't the Buddha when he was born here. But the commentaries talk about two births of the Buddha, and one is the birth of Rupakaya, and the other is the birth of Dhammakaya. And this is the place of the birth of the Rupakaya, the Buddha's physical manifestation or physical form. The second birth is, un, is at Bodhgaya, where we'll be heading, and it's the birth of the Dhamma, the actual Buddha-ness of the Buddha. So because his his Rupakaya was born before the Dhammakaya, you could say this is the birthplace of the Buddha, in the, the Rupakaya. In some ways it's the, the least inspiring of the four places for some... Uh, the, the sense it might be, why are we here, or what, so, what should we feel when we're here? Because again, it, it was just the Rupakaya, and you can say, well, the Buddha was born, but he wasn't a Buddha yet. And in some sense, it's not even that remarkable, because it's, it's simply the very last bit of a very long and, and uh, arduous and, and difficult and incredible journey. So the last life is just the very last bit of it, when, when the whole journey is quite incredible. Uh, but in terms of birth, there is something quite important about the fact that this was the Buddha's last birth. This was it. This was the culmination of births. So I had to talk a little bit about birth make it a little deeper for us, but also highlight how, how incredible and special the Buddha's last birth was, his last life. So there are, besides being born as a Buddha, there are six births, six types of birth. Birth as uh, in hell, Birth as a ghost, birth in the animal realm, birth as a human, birth as a deva, and birth as a Brahma. Those are the six types of birth. If we're talking in terms of what, what birth means, all six of those types of birth are, are under the category of conventional birth or conceptual birth. Because of course the, the mind is born and dies every moment. So you could say there are two types of birth and all of those six are, are one type. But it's worth talking about them, it's worth reminding ourselves about the nature of reality, that our existence as human beings is 
contrived. It's nothing special. This isn't the de facto birth where we have ten fingers and ten toes and two arms, two legs, and many other types of birth. To be born in hell, if, you, if you're full of anger, then your birth becomes a birth in, in, a, in a realm of great suffering because your inclination of mind is, is to cause suffering to yourself and to others. Of course, it's very painful to be angry, but it's also the cause of greatest cause of harm to others. And so the birth that becomes that comes from anger is birth in hell. Birth as a ghost comes from greed. The person has a great amount of greed, intense greed, stingy, miserly, clingy. Then uh, and the birth that comes from that is birth as a, as a ghost. If a person has a great amount of delusion, then the birth that comes from that is birth as an animal. These are important conceptually to give us a sort of a, a broader picture of the nature of reality, the nature of defilements, give us a sense of, of an important distinction among mind states and among beings. Because you see humans who are, are they have words in Pali like manusapeto, and a human who is like a, a ghost, hungry, never satisfied. Right? The stories that we hear about ghosts are beings who are, at, are stuck on a place some place that was very important to them. So the intense clinging kept them there when they passed away. But they're, they're always wanting. They're always yearning for something. And we have many ghost stories, stories of ghosts, descriptions of ghosts in Buddhism. But you can see humans who are like that, never satisfied. Drug addicts, a good example. You see humans, manusan neraiko, I think, something like that. Someone who is uh, a human, but, but hellish, like a hell being. And if you've ever gotten really angry, you know what that's like. It's hell to be so angry. If you've ever seen people who are so angry, they look like demons. So, so we all have that in us, but a person who is intent upon that it's most likely to be reborn in hell if they if it's their life you know, angry about everything mostly mean and cruel you know honestly it doesn't mean just because we're angry or greedy that we're likely to go to these places you really need to be breaking the five precepts killing and stealing and so on and the same with the animal realm you see humans who are so deluded intent upon remaining ignorant, with no interest in higher qualities. Humans who are just like the cows that we see, content to eat and ruminate and... Ruminate, is that the word? 
content to chew their cud, as it were. Being a cow isn't the worst, I don't think, but if real delusion, you get born in some of the bad realms, bad animal realms. Being a cow can be terrible if you get slaughtered, but the life isn't so bad, it's just quite peaceful compared to, say, being born as a, a rabbit, being hunted by wolves, a mouse being hunted by cats, a squirrel, or animals that fight each other, cats that fight each other, dogs, wolves that fight and kill each other. That's three. The, the Being born as a human, even if you have greed, anger, delusion, being born as a human requires uh, something along the lines of keeping the five precepts. That's why the five precepts are, are enumerated like that. These are the five sort of general concepts that uh, delineate birth in a good realm and birth in a, in a not so good, a not good realm. You're born as a human, if you keep the five precepts and are generally committed as an individual, then the birth that comes from that is, is as a human. And you know, it's more granular than that, you can say, because um, your experiences, if you get angry at someone, you're going to get into hell on earth. You're, you're, you're mean and cruel to people and so on. If on the other hand, you're uh, keeping the precepts, you'll find you live a fairly civilized life. You don't get caught up with drunk drunkards and murderers and thieves and liars and so on. It feels fairly human, humane, right? Would be a good word. To be born as a, an angel, born as an angel requires not just keeping the five precepts, but it requires something we call mahakusala, goodness. So being humane is one thing, treating other people as you'd like to be treated, that sort of thing, it's good. But um, people who go above and beyond are the ones who are born as angels, people who, who are intent on purification. I think a lot of Buddhist meditators, it's, it's a general concept, conception that Buddhist meditators tend to go to heaven because their intent, I mean, that's the whole thrust of Buddhism. It's not to believe in this or believe in that, believe in the Buddha. What is the core of Buddhism? It's really about purifying your mind. And so I don't think it's bragging or, or kind of you know, conceit to think that Buddhism is, Buddhists are more likely to go to heaven because that we're, we're intent upon it. We don't have these views like you do this and you go to heaven, you do that and you go to heaven. It's, you act heavenly and you go to heaven. And uh, a lot of, it's, it's very much in many ways in line with the Buddha's teaching. Some of the heavenly stuff that, that some of the things that would lead to heaven. You know, things like uh, renouncing entertainment and, and sensuality. You're eating only in the morning as all of you are doing, that sort of thing. It's a very sort of dedicated, you're not doing it to torture yourself or because the Buddha said or because you want to feel good about yourself. You're doing it because you understand that it's good training. It's really useful to, and it helps you purify your mind. 
that sort of thing leads to heaven. But many non-Buddhists, of course, also go to heaven. People who are very kind and charitable. They don't have to. They're not just doing their ordinary duty as a human being, but they intend to go out of their way to help people who are not well off, to be kind, to think good thoughts, people who practice metta, bhavana, that sort of thing. Mahakusala, dana, sila, bhavana, even just um, keeping sila, someone who, who is set on not lying. I'm never going to lie. I think there was a story of someone who went to heaven because of that. I can't remember. Maybe I'm wrong. Keeping the eight precepts is a good sort of example. To be born as a Brahma, which is the Buddhist equivalent of God, or the closest thing we have to gods, um, only because they're different than angels. They don't engage in sensuality. They're more high-minded, more lofty. To get there, you have to practice the samatha jhana. So a person who is intent upon entering into states of absorption that are one-pointed, that are out of any sensuality. So they don't have any experience of the world. They're just Their whole world is one thing, one concept. Maybe it's metta, could be. Maybe it's a candle flame. Uh, different things like that. And again, all three, all of these things keep, well, the, the going to heaven or becoming a god, you can think of them more granular as well, and it, it helps you to understand and, and get some kind of confidence that, yeah, it makes sense that that would happen, that's, that's how birth would occur, because you can see it in this life. Unless you have the view that when you die, consciousness ceases. You can see in this life a person who is kind and generous, Maybe bad things happen to them, we'd say from bad karma, we would try to excuse it off by that, but so many good things happen to them and, and so many people love them and appreciate them. And a person who is intent upon samatha meditation, they are so fixed and focused, it doesn't matter if they get harassed by others because they're high-minded. Brahma is a very high-minded state. But none of these six forms of birth comes close to birth as a Buddha, of course. So the birth of the Buddha, the Buddha, when after he became enlightened, he was asked, he walked, remember I said he walked to Saranat, to, to Isipatana, Deer Park. And on his way he met a man who asked him, what are you? He saw, oh, this guy is kind of special. And he said, what are you? Are you human? Are you a god? Are you an angel? Mara? I don't know what exactly he asked, all these different... What are you? In the Buddha roundabout way, he said, I've learned what needs to be learned, I've, I've conquered all the universe, I mean, you're very lofty, sort of lion's roar kind of thing. And then he said, I have no teacher, there's no one like me, there's no one parallel to me, no one above me. I am a Sama Sambuddha. So he differentiated, he didn't answer, I'm a human or a god. And some people say, you know, he didn't, he isn't, wasn't really a human, he was a Buddha. I think you could say he was a human, it's pretty clear that to some extent he was a human, but it's also proper to say he was simply a Buddha, or a Samma Sambuddha. So, we take this as an important event 
the the birth of the Buddha. It was the story. You know, there's there's a, an encapsulated sense of when he was born here in Lumbini, something important happened. This was the beginning of the Buddha story. Um, you often hear it told this way. Of course, as Buddhist meditators, when we think of birth, to some extent we, we have to look at all of these places and our whole pilgrimage in a different way. And that's, I think, what we're all kind of struggling with, is maybe too strong of a word, but grappling with, trying to align ourselves in the right way, because we see that simply being excited to go to see, oh, this was the way, it's, it's not really the where it's at. It's not the way to be free from suffering or to follow the Buddha's teachings even, to put it more strongly. That the Buddha didn't intend for us to uh, go touristing. He didn't intend for us to come here and think, oh, I'm, I'm excited to be in Lumbini. So we have to think about birth. Ultimately, birth comes down to momentary birth. Every time an emotion arises, that's the birth of that emotion. When suffering arises, when, uh, when the paramis arise. What was most important about the Buddha is that he gave birth to what we call the paramitas, the ten perfections. He gave birth to dana, charity. He gave away his own eyes once. What it really means is he, sac he, he gave up any sense of, of possessiveness, any sense of self. And this was a big part of why he was able to finally see non-self and have a sense that um, reality doesn't, doesn't admit of possession and, and ego and so on. Because he sacrificed. He, he, he made a determination to not take possession of things, to not claim ownership of things. Sila, he was intent on, on morality, ethics. You know, he wasn't always a monk or an ascetic even. He had children. Uh, he broke even maybe the five precepts sometimes, but for the most part, I think you'd be, actually I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, even an example. And some people might say maybe the truth, maybe the orthodox idea is that he kept the five precepts until, until uh, I can't think of an instance where he broke them. I don't know. There was something about him being a thief, but I'm not sure about that. Anyway, what he developed from the time of Dipankara until the time of his last birth was a profound sense of ethics whereby even to save his own life, he wouldn't break a uh, precept, he wouldn't do something immoral. Even to save his own life, to save someone else's life. A lot of it being beyond our ordinary sense of ethics or even charity or any, any of the perfections because he knew that he had a, a broader sense of, you know, trying to keep people from suffering. You know, maybe if I kill someone, it'll help someone else or a lot of other people. He had a deeper understanding of it all being samsara. You can't really free people from their own uh, suffering. 
because they pass away and they're born again. The only way would be to purify his mind, to find the way out, and then he could help people. Because there was no way out. There's no way to fix people's problems or even your own problems. Nikama Parami, the renunciation, many times he gave up kingship, he gave up wealth, renunciation. Panya Parami, so many stories you hear. There's a very good story, the Maha Umaga Jataka, where he was, even at seven years old, he was solving people's problems for them and the wisdom that he displayed. But his appreciation and his dedication to understanding, to leaving home and, and finding, you know, understanding his own mind and understanding the world. Vidya uh, Parami, effort. One time the Bodhisattva was shipwrecked and he said, he just swam across the ocean and this angel in the ocean said, what are you doing? You're never going to make it to the edge of the ocean. You're in the middle of the ocean. And he said, tell me what can't be, I don't know if he said, one time the Buddha said, tell me what can't be achieved by striving. He said, if I don't try then I'm lost. That story, that's Mahajanaka, it's a very famous Jataka. And the angel picked him up and took him to the edge of the ocean. I was quite impressed by his, uh, his dedication. But the Buddha had never gave up. That's a good way of summing it up. His F, what does effort mean? He never gave up. And that's an example. When we talk about effort in meditation courses, it's not that you have to work really hard. It's that when you fail, when you, when you feel like you just can't do it, try again. And if you have that capacity to try again when you feel like you just can't do it anymore, that's effort. Kanti, patience, well we learn all about that in meditation, but the Buddha's patience, he had his ears cut off, his nose cut off, one life, his hands cut off. This king was very angry and jealous and thought he was stealing his, his women, cut off all his limbs. And he said, what do you think? Do you think my patience is in my ears? <laughs> I said, my patience is deeper than that. And he died patient in that life. Satcha Parami, the Buddha was, had great Satcha. Satcha was, you could see it at the end, Satcha means uh, being true to yourself, having being true to a, a vision, being true to an intention. And So when Mara came and the Buddha was seated under the Bodhi tree and he said, you don't deserve to be there, the Buddha said, I do deserve to be here, and the earth is my witness, and he touched the earth. And, and Mara just got thrown away, got blown away by the water. But it was satcha. It was the power of, you can say, you, I don't deserve it all you want, and the Buddha's the, the power of, I do deserve to sit here. That was truth. It was very powerful. There's many examples of monks and in the stories and lay people using truth. Angulimala is one example. Aditana, when the Buddha made a determination to become a Buddha and then never wavered, when he made a determination for his bowl to float upstream, which can't happen, you know, right? Bowls don't float upstream, but he made a determination that it should and it did. Uh, Metta Parami, the Buddha's friendliness, his, uh, the Bodhisattva's cultivation of friendliness even when people were angry at him. And equanimity, how he didn't look at one person or another as greater or lesser. 
somehow. He never, he cultivated the capacity to not be attached and partial. These are the ten paramitas. These are the things that the Buddha gave birth to. Of course, he also gave birth to suffering, as we all do. Birth, birth as a human is birth of suffering and birth of things that can cause you suffering. So a part of our practice is to be aware of birth when it occurs, meaning experience. When an experience arises, it doesn't need to cause you suffering, even though you could argue, you know, whatever. It doesn't need to cause you suffering unless you cling to it, unless you get caught up in it. And so we're, we're very much concerned about birth. We're also concerned about death, which is something we can talk about at the next place, maybe. But um, we're concerned about the birth of experiences. When something comes up, birth of problems, birth of anything, because we're concerned about how we are going to relate to it. It's something that's very important to us. You feel a pain that something was born, and that's very important because how you deal with that, that thing could cause you a lot of suffering if you let it. Someone says something to you, birth, birth of sound, that sound was born. That's a very important thing because that sound could cause you to do all sorts of things. You taste food, it can cause you... you know, birth of experience is a very important thing. So in, in we look at the world like this, experiences and that's where birth that's the second type of birth birth as a god or an angel or a human or in hell or so on that's conventional we look at these two types of birth we come here it's a good uh, reason to talk about them both but uh, even on a conventional level putting them both together I guess we come here to celebrate the Buddha's birth in a conventional sense as a means of giving birth ourselves to wholesome qualities of reverence and respect and appreciation. We come here to uh, revere this very monumentous event where the Buddha was finally born in his last life, where he would become the Buddha, give rise to the Dhamma, give birth to the Dhamma and the Dhamma would be born, and then the Sangha would be born. And we would all be able to be here, to have this precious uh, Dhamma. So, some thoughts on Lumbini. We are here now. That's the pond where she bathed, and behind that is the pillar, and that big building has apparently the exact spot where the Buddha was born. There you go.